you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope your Tuesday's off to a great start. You're giving Tuesday, and it's so good to have you with us. First off this morning, we want to check in on the ratification vote of the SAG-AFTRA contract that was negotiated with uh, the association representing motion picture streamers and studios. LAS reporter Robert Garova has been covering the strike. He covered the contract negotiations. And now Robert in LAS's pages is uh, covering the vote going on right now. Robert, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Lee. So it seems like a still an issue of contention, even with the expected ratification of the contract, is over artificial intelligence. And what's going on in that conversation among SAG-AFTRA members right now over the AI provisions? Well, you know, a lot of the provisions that that were achieved are are really groundbreaking, and you know, all of this is super uncharted territory for any industry really and um you know i I think some of the big concerns uh that uh the actors continue to have are around you know how the provisions that are in the contract are going to be enforced um you know they because they did win uh you know consent um for for creation of a digital replica um it was interesting, uh, you know, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, the the chief negotiator, did a Instagram Q and A a week or so ago, and you know there there were some questions about you know why couldn't you just stop AI and and ban it you know in our contract entirely, um, and he basically said we can't stop it it's it's already here it's coming so we sort of just had to work on you know what provisions we could get um, you know and and it's interesting to me that that while there is the requirement for consent. Uh, you know, to create a digital replica of, of a performer, there's still, you know, the option of, you know, the the studio or the streamer saying, you know, it's it's uh, a requirement of employment that you have a digital scan done of you. And if and if the actor doesn't want to, doesn't want to do that, you know, just the same way as if they were required to wear a cost, certain costume or shave their head, they, you know, they could say, <laughs> Um, you know, turn them away. Yeah, and hire someone else who would be yeah. willing to accept having the di- digital replica made. I'd love to hear from SAG-AFTRA members uh, what you're weighing with your decision on your vote on the contract. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us your thoughts about the contract that you're voting on at atcomments at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, and uh, I should mention as well, uh, like Robert, I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA, though not 
not covered for broadcast work by this contract. We, of course, were not on strike during the sag after strike because of being covered by a separate contract. 866-893-5722. And you can also email what you're weighing in terms of your vote on this contract at atcomments at laist.com. Uh, Robert, uh, with the other provisions, uh, are, are, are they generally um, seem to be going down well with the rank and file of SAG-AFTRA? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to say because, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to talk with all, you know, the, the you know, hundreds of more, more than 100,000 members. But, you know, I talked with somebody who I've sort of been talking with about AI from the beginning. He's an actor. He's his name's Eric Pazoja. He's on the um, he's on the he's a delegate uh, for the union was elected recently. Um, you know, and and he says that in in all of his circles, the, the AI provisions, the digital replica stuff, is still the top concern. It's the you know questions he gets the most from colleagues and everything else. Um, you know, it's it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, he he uh, this this particular actor who you know is a self professed AI nerd um, said that you know there's there's a a, um, a heaven scenario in all of this, and there's one provision in in the contract where you know if a if a digital replica is made um, and it's used on the same project for which it's made, <laughs> there's a fascinating you know thing where the studio would have to pay calculate how much that digital replica work would be in like true work for a real life actor and pay that actors per per day rate for that work so you know he's imagining a future scenario where you know an actor could kind of be two places at once you know mm. making money on set and you know their digital replica is being used in you know however many commercials or whatever it is but um you know all of this stuff sounds very sci-fi but <laughs> It's it's kind of around the corner, and you know it's it's hard to sort of look into a crystal ball and see where all of it's going. But um, the union seems to have tried their best. And again, uh, I just want to encourage SAC after members voting on this contract. Please share with us what you're weighing as you vote on this contract. It's great to hear from members of SAG-AFTRA some of the concerns you might have, uh, some of the reasons you're voting to either ratify or not to ratify the contract that was negotiated. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us what your thought process is with your vote at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name to share that with us. Robert, what uh, is the close of the voting window here? So it's going to be this coming week. It's going to be the 5th of December. Um, and I, I believe actors have until the end of the day to get their, their votes in uh, for that. So it's coming up. All right. And again, uh, it's widely expected that despite some of the concerns that have been expressed about AI, that the contract will be ratified. This is a three-year deal, Robert, that right? So they'll, they'll, they'll have to come back at this afterwards? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a three-year, more than $1 billion um, in value deal, uh, SAG-AFTRA is saying. So, yeah, they would have to come back um, 
uh, in, in two and a half years or so to start negotiating all over again. All right. Well, Robert, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing your reporting on this. Robert Garova's piece looking at the vote of SAG-AFTRA members on the tentative contract. You can find his uh, article at LAist.com. Robert Garova has been covering all facets of uh, the strike, the negotiations, and now the vote. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Wonderful to have you with us today on Air Talk on this Giving Tuesday. I should also mention that we have Air Talk overtime today, as we typically do during our longer member drive. So we're bringing you an 11 o'clock hour of Air Talk today. We've got some special guests for you that are coming up. But right now, we turn our attention to the holiday buying season. At LAS.com, we have just launched our holiday gift guide for the year, and I was asked to put together a list of some of my favorite books about Los Angeles. This to give a kind of primer uh, books that I have found valuable for my own education about L.A. over the years. Joining me is the editor of L.A.'s 2023 Holiday Gift Guide, the third year that we have published this at L.A.'s.com, Renee Lynch. Renee, good Tuesday morning to you. Good Tuesday morning to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, happy Giving Tuesday. So let's start, first of all, with the idea behind this. Um, what's the focus of the LAist holiday giving uh, guide, gift-giving guide, perhaps compared to you know some of the others that are out there? Well, you know, we are really all about L.A., and so our gift guide is really about shopping L.A. I mean, we all understand the uh, conveniences of shopping online, and we all love that, of course, but this is really about supporting L.A., buying L.A., finding only an L.A. gift, and you really can't find them anywhere else. What are some examples? Uh, I'll get to my list in a little bit. But what are some of the other things that are available for LAS.com readers? Well, we have so many different gifts. We really put a lot of time and attention to thinking about, like, what best, what are the best gifts to help people get their shopping done? So we have gift ideas for kids, um, for pets, uh, for foodies. Um, we have ideas for, you know, this is the party season, and so we're always kind of looking for something that's maybe a little more creative than a bottle of wine. So we want gifts for um, people who are hosting parties. Um, we've also got gift ideas for people who don't want more stuff. So they're all about the, uh, an experiential gift. 
Um, so we really try to cover a little bit of everything. I love this idea of of, of 16 gifts for a party host, Bonnie McCarthy, uh, putting this together, um, which I just think is a, a great idea. So there's a cookbook by Gabby Dalkin, Take It Easy. Uh, there are uh, organic cotton napkins, uh, bamboo salad plates, all kinds of little uh, gifts, host gifts sorts of things, but that could be used uh, by a host for a future event. These are nice little ideas and um, environmentally sensitive as well. Yes, we really also put try to put a lot of thought into thinking we, people want to buy gifts, but they also want to do things a little more mindfully. We're all trying to be a little more mindful. And so we really try to put an emphasis on eco-friendly gifts, gifts that were kind to the environment, um, gifts that were maybe a little more a little more thought put into them. One of the things I enjoy is uh, great gifts for people who have enough stuff, don't want any more clutter, <laughs> but an experience is something that you can give them. Uh, so, for example, candlelight concerts, uh, membership to a film club, uh, L.A. History Tours, a real favorite of mine, and there are a number of different uh, organizations that do L.A. History Tours. Um, let's see, there's also horseback riding with a view, a very L.A. experience. Pickleball lessons, uh, the incredibly popular and growing sport of pickleball. So those are just an example, and these are all written by different contributors, which is which is fun, Renee. So you're getting a variety of different perspectives on these gifts. Exactly, exactly. And uh, one thing I want to mention on that list, you mentioned candlelight concerts. Yeah. These things are terrific, and it's a great opportunity to get people together. Most people can agree on some kind of theme of music that they might like or enjoy, but they're just very kind of kind of quiet, contemplative um, events. Some of, I mean, some of them are more like rock star events. Some of these candlelight um, concerts are tributes to Taylor Swift, uh, but that's a, a, a great one that you noted. I I hadn't even heard of these until I saw it on the on the list at the uh, holiday gift guide at las.com. We're talking with Renee Lynch. She's the editor of the 2023 holiday gift guide. This is the third straight year that LAS has put it together. And uh, let me share some of the the books that that I've put together. Um, these are my favorites to really give a sense of Los Angeles. So one of the books on my list is. Luis Rodriguez's book, Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A., and it's really his memoir about growing up in East Los Angeles, about his difficulty uh, falling into a gang life, some of the, the very tough circumstances in which he found himself. And one of the things that I appreciate about the book, Renee, it gives a sense of of the multi generation nature of some of Los Angeles's gangs, and how strong a pull it can be, particularly for those growing up in dysfunctional families, when it gives a sense of of um, of belonging to kids. And Luis's book does that very well. And then also how he is mentored out of that and becomes um, you know such a successful writer later on. So, um, Renee, I, I don't know uh, if you've had a chance to read any of the books that I have put on the list uh, over the years, but that's, that's sort of what I was looking at is all the different aspects, the complexities of, of Los Angeles life. Well, that's exactly what that list does. And I have to tell you that um, just from our traffic numbers, that's been one of the most popular 
list in the package, it's really, if, if, you know, so many people who are in LA are from somewhere else. And so we're constantly in a, in a state of trying to learn more about the place that we're, that we're at. And this list, honestly, you could take it from top to bottom. It's like a master class in Los Angeles and California. So I would really encourage oh, people, you. if you're thinking, I don't, I've got somebody on my gift list and I don't know what to get them, you're going to find something on, on your uh, list of LA books, Larry. Well, as some of the others, thank you for that. Uh, I'll share Lisa C.'s wonderful book on Gold Mountain, the 100-year odyssey of a Chinese-American family. So Lisa C.'s family did not come to the United States as, as many early Chinese immigrants did to work on the building of the railroad. Her great-grandfather came to the U.S. and specifically to Los Angeles and rose to prominence in Chinatown in L.A. The family still has its antique store right near Pasadena City College on Colorado Boulevard. It's been operating for more than a century. And Lisa's book is just, it's an incredible family history of multi-generations of, of an immigrant family and um, what that family's experience was like here in Southern California. The great Walter Mosley, who I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing Walter for a number of years, um, Devil in a Blue Dress, a terrific book which really sets off the beginning of his Easy Rollins series of books about um, the, the character who's uh, devoted to solving crimes. He is a day laborer turned detective. And what I love about this, as well as the film adaptation of Devil in a Blue Dress, is the sense of South Los Angeles during a time when restrictive housing covenants kept people from moving to other parts of the city. So you had a a real um, multi-economic strata of South Los Angeles with professionals and business owners and creative people and factory workers all living in the same community, Central Avenue, a central business district. And what Mosley really does is give you that sense of place of the black community historically in Los Angeles, the richness of it, the variety of different kinds of businesses, um, it's and and they're compelling mysteries is too just wonderful wonderful series of books. Uh, another one that I highly recommend Kevin Starr who was uh, he the late Kevin Starr was the historian for the state of California for a number of years. His book Material Dreams Southern California through the 1920s really details the boom years when Los Angeles's population just exploded and we had a huge boom in construction, particularly in the decade of the 20s, huge investment in Southern California. My family arrived at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, Star dubs them the folks. (laughs) My family came from Michigan. People came from all over the Midwest to make a new life, driven, uh, you know, brought here by economic opportunity, as as most immigrants coming to Southern California sought. Star book, Material Dreams, Southern California Through the 20s, uh, just a really uh, a, a strong book on that. But there are many others. Uh, the Bosch series, of course, by Michael Connolly. Neil Gabler's incredible book on the um, movie moguls who started the film business here in Southern California. Neil's book, An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood, an extraordinary history, and how these men who were Jewish immigrants really created a sense of what America meant to moviegoers. It's a tremendous cross-cultural look 
at, at the power of Hollywood studios. Zev Yaroslavsky's new memoir, Zev's Los Angeles, From Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power, Pat Morrison's Rio L.A., Tales from the Los Angeles River, uh, Mike Davis's City of Quartz, Excavating the Future of Los Angeles. I also have on the list D.J. Waldy's Holy Land, a suburban memoir about growing up in Lakewood, one of those post-war suburban communities built for factory workers, and in Lakewood's case, was the aircraft industry being served by that community. So you can check out, I explain why I chose these books. You can find that all on the LAist Holiday Gift Guide at LAist.com, and it's right there along the top banner. Renee, thank you so much. I appreciate you you joining us and talking about some of the wonderful different uh, gift-giving ideas that are here. There's so many superb ideas. I'm going to be using this. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Renee Lynch, editor of LA's 2023 Holiday Gift Guide. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Flash flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Aaron Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called land spouts, which are basically like mini tornadoes. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Now we do know the driver, possibly two other people inside that vehicle. Original one, some sort of robbery situation. Not sure if they were undercover. They were being watched by undercovers. But this vehicle this afternoon driving extremely fast and reckless. And it does seem Well, it's like a soundtrack of Southern California. Police chases, we know it so well. And local television stations know that ratings spike when they cover a car chase. Sometimes I think that KCAL's primetime news coverage largely exists so they can cut in with a police chase during the primetime hours and bring it to you. You. But uh, Pluto TV, which is an advertiser-supported streaming service, which is owned by the parent company of, of CBS and Paramount, uh, offers a channel that is devoted 24-7 to recordings of police chases. How did I learn this? From Gustavo Ariano's column in the Los Angeles Times, titled What I Learned from Watching a 24-Hour Police Pursuit Channel. Gustavo, thanks so much for joining us. I, I appreciate and I loved how upfront you are about your longtime love for watching police chases. This go back to when you were a kid? Gustavo? Well, we'll try and uh, get him on here. We had him lined up just a moment ago. Hopefully we can get him back on and uh, ask him about this. So I'd like to hear from you as an AirTalk listener while we wait for Gustavo. 
um, about Hello. your your. Hi, Gustavo. Gustavo, you yeah. there? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry yeah, about great. That, Larry, twenty first century technologies. I was on <laughs> mute. And I couldn't find the mute button. But no, I've been watching car chases since I was probably a sophomore at Anaheim High School during the summer. Tuned into <laughs> Channel Five News, watching uh, who's now Zoe tour uh, going around in helicopters and just filming all sorts of things and. I'll be honest, it reminded me of the video games that were still pixelated back then, but you still had that thrill of those car chases. Well, and of course, some of these chases, and tragically, and I guess the flip side of that is that's probably part of the draws. People are wondering whether there's going to be a spectacular crash or not. It's, I mean, there are still people who go to car races for the crashes. I mean, there's bo- people watch boxing, people watch MMA. Sadly, we are still human, and so humans have always had this capacity for uh, bloodthirst and seeing things happen. But I think with car chases, though, now, we're 30 years into car chases in Southern California, and maybe at first it was a spectacle of what might happen at the end, but now they're so comforting. Like, So when I watch this Pluto TV car chase channel, and that's the name of the channel, car chase, not very <laughs> imaginative, I thought, okay, I'm going to be very skeptical. I have to be come in, come in with a critic. And honestly, at first I was bored. I'm like, all right, here we are. It's the same chase for an hour. It's really boring. But then I realized the the sounds, the 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 announcers, the whir of the helicopter blades, it's comforting now. It is part of our Southern California lines, landscape. Like if you're near the ocean, it's the beachways. If you're near the freeway, it's the rush of freeways. It's birds. And now every evening for me, it's car chases. Eventually they're going to pop in and then I thought, if I didn't listen to these car chases, then I know something is terribly wrong with Southern California. And that's such a horrible thing to say, but it's true. We're talking with L.A. Times columnist Gustavo Arellano about his recent column about the appeal of car chases. So appealing that the advertiser-supported streaming service Pluto has a car chase channel 24-7. And they have a lot of material because uh, their CBS-owned and operated uh, KCBS and KCAL channel are on so much covering car chases. They have, I can't imagine how many hours of footage. Did they tell you, Gustavo, how deep the archive of car chases goes? Oh, my gosh. Well, I I asked, and I wanted to talk to an executive. I did this column last week, but all the executives were out on Thanksgiving break, so I just got an emailed statement from a Pluto TV publicist, and so I asked, are you going to get your car chases, like what's the archives? And she said it's going to be almost exclusively from their CBS stations, which of course here in Southern California is going to be Channel 2 and Channel 9. And she didn't say how far they would go. So I don't know, especially once uh, Viacom or whatever got access to those channels, if it's going to go pre, I don't know, 1990s or whatever. But think about all the great car, most of the great car chases in Southern California, the infamous ones at least, came out or rather in, in, uh, you know, in television history happened here in Southern California, happened during our lifetimes. We should also mention that a lot of what is compelling about the coverage, Gustavo, are the reporters in the air. You mentioned Zoe Tour, but there have been so many others over the years who are are very gifted reporters, and I don't understand how they're able to stay on track. Uh, the knowledge they have, of course, has to be vast of the, of the grid of Southern California, but then how they stay on top of all the developments and they're listening to uh, the law enforcement channels to keep track of what they're saying. Um, it that, that talk about a specialized uh, profession. 
It's sports play-by-play mixed with uh, Mike Davis' knowledge of Southern California, (laughs) mixed with uh, you also have to be entertaining as well. Of course, the the king right now is Stu Mundell, who is with CBS SoCal. And you also have to be funny. And and then you also have to know, when am I going to go back to the, you know, the, the broadcasters in studio? When are we going to go to the expert, uh, you know, the police uh, expert who's usually a retired police officer saying, oh, well, you know, this is, they're probably going to face this charge and that charge. But I, I, I agree. It's like, you have to be like back in the days, London taxi cab drivers had to learn uh, by, by memory, all the ins and outs of the streets of London in order to be able to pass their test. In Southern California, if you're going to lay, you have to know your, the difference between Arlita and Lomita going all the way up as high around to El Cajon Pass and just to, and the Southern edge is Pendleton because they don't allow you to fly over Pendleton, of course. Uh, or LAX uh, for obvious oh, reasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I like on ABC7, they have a technology that overlays the street names oh my God, on the image, which is really helpful because um, that that's a very, I wish all of the, the channels had that in, in their sky coverage. Gustavo Ariano, LA Times columnist, talking talking about the appeal for decades of car chases in Los Angeles. I never hear about this with other freeway-centric cities, like Houston, for example, which, you know, has a vast freeway system. I don't hear about car chases there. Do you know if this is just kind of an L.A. thing? The the obsession, yes. And my God, Houston, they have freeways, byways. They have like three separate different freeways alongside each other. But I think here in Southern California, first and foremost, of course, you have the density, the, the simultaneous density and sprawl. You have the home of Hollywood here. You have these television, pioneering news stations, by the way. Of course, Channel 5, we know the history there, but also KCAL 9 with its three-hour news block. You have all this competition. And then now you really have a generation of people who have grown up with it. And every once in a while, like I know Phoenix has some interesting car chases. Houston, not as much. There was, of course, it wasn't a chase, but there was a guy in the Midwest who had a 2,000 pound cow in one of in a car, oh, not yeah. in a truck. Yeah. Yeah. So you you hear every once in a while, but there's not that ubiquity the way you have here in Southern California. And also, let's forget, we are even as we go electric, we are still a car culture. We're still obsessed with anything car. And so if this is like the penult- the ultimate in entertainment that we could see from the comfort of our homes, then we you know, then we're going to do it. It's like the same thing with, uh, you know, when you have uh, cars taking over intersection and do spin outs, you don't see it really in any other city except maybe San Francisco. But here we're the capital of anything car crazy. My wife is not a big fan of, of car chases. So if there's one I'm particularly invested in, I need to go watch it in the other room because <laughs> it, it bugs her. I, th- I think, you know, people people fall on both sides of this. Our air talk producer, uh, Manny Valladara, said uh, his favorite memory uh, of this was working at the Daily 49er at Cal State Long Beach, the student publication, on deadline for the print edition, he pulled up a car chase on his computer just to watch while he worked. All of his colleagues ended up crowding around the computer. Eventually, we just ended up putting it on a TV, seeing a man drive uh, uh, down the five from L.A. uh, getting to Norwalk. It was a great time and a memorable day. Yeah, all these student journalists pulled away from their deadline work to watch the car chase, uh, a story I'm sure that's often been seen. Gustavo, always a pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Gracias as always, Larry. Thank you. Gustavo Ariano, Los Angeles Times columnist, joining us on Air Talk.
It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up later this hour, we're going to take a look at the number of jobs that have been cut in the video game business, which has a huge presence here in California. Hundreds of thousands of people that work in the video game industry, which is a, a mammoth entertainment industry now. We'll talk about what's ahead for that uh, that sector of business. But right now, we turn our attention to interest rates, which, of course, are huge, not just for, advent, uh, uh, for investors, but for people looking to buy a home and take out a mortgage. More than a year and a half ago, the Federal Reserve began its campaign against inflation with uh, raising interest rates. Now the question is, is the Res- Federal Reserve going to look at cutting interest rates sometime next year? And what impact is that going to have on consumers and on the market? Joining us is Nancy Wallace, professor of real estate at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. She also co-chairs uh, the Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban e- Economics at Berkeley. Nancy, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your being with us, Professor. Thank you for having me. So let's talk first about this um, this prediction that is being made. I saw Bank of America and some others are saying that they think it likely that the Fed is going to drop rates next year. What do you think of uh, of that uh, uh, of that forecast? So the signals from the economy are very mixed. And although there are certainly investment banking and banking uh, participants in the market that are very focused on the potential for a recession next um, year, actually starting in January potentially or manifesting more clearly in the late spring, uh, the signals are very mixed. So I'm more conservative and I think it's likely that the Fed will hold Uh, rather than cut rates. Certainly the predictions that they'll cut by as much as one percentage point or 100 basis point, I think are ill-founded. On the whole, the economy is quite relatively strong. Unemployment in particular hasn't really increased very much. And um, even though the stock market is very exuberant right now, uh, the signals from the bond market are not a clear indication that there is going to be a recession that's large enough for the Fed to respond with significant rate cutting. If the Fed were to cut rates next year, what would the effect be on the kind of retail interest rates people pay or or that they receive in savings accounts? So that's clearly the benefit from having the the Fed cut rates. Uh, The mortgage rates are very high, at least by the recent historical levels, certainly not going back 15 years, that's not the case, but the rates are very high and it's making serious problems in the housing market in people unwilling to sell their homes, given that they're sitting on 3.5, 3 3.7% rates and the concerns that mortgage potential borrowers are having a lot of trouble qualifying for these rates. And uh, therefore it's spooking a lot of people to think about buying houses. Uh, and that's true for consumer markets too, borrowing on credit. And and in terms of uh, return, you know, finally we've seen with these rate increases where 
um, you know, cash accounts can actually give a you know, decent interest rate of return from four to five percent, uh, mm-hmm. just with conventional accounts. And so that, I mean, that's that's obviously good, particularly for for older people who maybe are getting a little more skittish about um, being exposed in the market. But would you see the, those? savings rates um, dropping along with the Fed's rate cut if they do one? So bank deposit rates move with the federal funds rate. So the answer is yes. If there is a reduction in rates, which is not a sure thing by any means, uh, despite the predictions from many analysts and from the derivatives markets in particular, the treasury derivatives markets, it is not a sure thing that they're going to fall. But the banks, if the rates do fall, if the Fed does reduce rates, and I think if it does, it's not going to be more than 25 basis points, you should expect deposit payments to fall as well. They more or less move in tandem. Now, that's not true for the very largest banks. Their deposit rates tend to be much stickier. But anything other than the top 20 largest banks in the United States uh, they'll respond to the Fed funds rate. We're talking with UC Berkeley Haas School of Business professor of real estate, Nancy Wallace. She also heads uh, Cal's Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics. She's the co-chair of it. And with us as well as Logan Matashami, lead analyst for Housing Wire, the real estate news site. Logan, good to have you with us again. Your thoughts about um, the housing market and and uh, the potential of rate cuts or or the rates just being held as Professor Wallace thinks it's more likely what the effect is going to be on on house sales? Well, when we look at the history of economics, traditionally speaking, when the Fed and the market both believe that they're done hiking rates, uh, the bond market and mortgage rates uh, tend to go lower together. Uh, maybe outside of 1978. So the move that we've seen already, we've almost had a 1% reduction in mortgage rates already just by the market participants already thinking this is the case and this would be normal. Um, The real uh, yields yields or Fed funds rate is actually very high compared to the growth rate of inflation. So this whole talk about the Fed cutting rates was actually what they brought up a few months ago. I think uh, uh, Williams from the New York Fed talked about if the growth rate of inflation falls, we can cut rates to keep the uh, um, the Fed policy not as restrictive as they want because they've done so much already. So I think that that is a viable discussion, but the bond market and mortgage rates will get well ahead of that as they have already. And we've already seen the impact uh, uh, on purchase application data. We've had three straight weeks of positive purchase application data. We haven't had that in months. And that's from mortgage rates going from 8% to about 7.30%. So this happened last year, November, December, and January, mortgage rates fell from 7.37% to uh, uh, 6%. We saw three months of positive purchase application data. It actually gave us a very big month-to-month sales print. So if this continues, then mortgage demand is coming back just because we're working from, I mean, I would argue that we're at historically low levels of demand when you consider the civilian workforce and how many people are working today. So we can get a bounce in sales just off of mortgage rates falling one to uh, one to one and a half percent by itself because the bar is so low, we could all trip over it. Hmm. Well, what, uh, what, uh, what fueled it last year at this time of year when the rates went down? Logan? 
I guess we just lost Logan right there. Uh, Professor Wallace, if you're still with us, uh, your thoughts. Do you guys about hear me? Yeah, Logan. Now I can hear you. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, last year at last year at this time, uh, the market was anticipating the economy getting weaker. Remember, London was going to lose its pension funds. The Bank of Japan needed intervention. The IMF was arguing the Fed to stop rate hikes. So bond yields rally, assuming that the U.S. was going to get much weaker. And then we had the banking crisis. We all forgot about that early this year. You know, the Fed mm, had to intervene right, right. and help that. So the 10-year yield and mortgage rates went lower off of those variables. And then the economy firmed up again and yields headed higher. But now it's a, it's, it's a different case. The Fed, uh, Governor Waller, who was a very big hawk today, said, hey, we're done. Uh, we don't think we need to hike anymore. And if this is the case, then mortgage rates can go lower by themselves. Uh, 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 and you don't need rate cuts. Now, the question is, can we get mortgage rates below 6%? Mm -hmm. That would probably need the economy to get weaker. We're jobless claims data that comes out every Thursday, every week. That If that starts ticking up higher and higher, especially over 300,000, then you could get mortgage rates maybe below 6%, and the Fed would be more open to cutting rates. But as long as the labor market is still intact, I wouldn't look for major rate cuts until that part of the uh, economy starts to get weaker. Well, and we continue with just a lack of sales inventory on homes. As as you said, uh, and the professor said, people are hanging on to their houses, uh, enjoying those very low interest rates on their mortgages and not wanting to take on double the rate of what they've currently got um, with the purchase of a new property. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens with this. Logan, thank you for being with us as always. We appreciate it. From Housing Wire, lead analyst Logan Monashaw, also, our thanks to UC Berkeley Professor Nancy Wallace. She's Professor of Real Estate at the Haas School of Business. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you for your wonderful support on this Giving Tuesday. Over the past decade, the video game industry has tripled in size, and it has a mammoth presence right here in California. There are so many big companies that are based here, including uh, EA, uh, Unity, uh, Amazon's games division, Riot's games, uh, all of these are California-based companies. But what we have seen is a significant cutting of the workforce in video games, an industry that particularly boomed during the pandemic. 
With us to talk about what's going on is Los Angeles Times reporter who covers the video game industry, Sarah Parvini. Sarah, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So just give us a little bit of of, uh, the recent history in the business. What's led to the boom in video games? Well, I think there's a lot of factors at play here, but uh, we'd be remiss not to mention the growth that the industry saw during the pandemic period. You know, a lot of folks were stuck at home quarantining, following stay-at-home orders, and what that did was opened up a lot of time to pick up a game and and a controller or head to your computer and and open up a game and play with your family. Uh, And what we're seeing now, I think, in part, is a little bit of a course correction in response to that. There was a lot of hiring then taking place during those pandemic years to try and develop new games to beef up these companies. Absolutely. A breakneck growth, you could say, as you know, publishers and developers really poured resources into their companies to put out more product, to beef up what they already had, especially in things like live service games that are constantly being updated. Do we have a sense of of how many jobs have been lost in video games across the country and specifically here in California? In California, it would be safe to say hundreds of jobs. It's a little bit tricky to track specifically in the state. But what I can tell you is that it's something around 8,000 jobs lost globally since January. Now, that number is still considered conservative because there are many companies that have not actually disclosed how many people they laid off. So it's not super clear, but a conservative estimate would be around 8,000. And we're still hearing about more layoffs happening globally, essentially every day. Now, what I can also tell you is that this has a ripple effect in California because the state is home to something like 720 video game companies, and about 700 of those are publishers, game developers, or software developers. Wow. And you you cite the economic impact as being $54 billion uh, for the state of California. And as of last year, more than 150,000 people employed in the video game business here in California. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, we have several publishers just in Southern California alone. We have Activision, we have Blizzard Entertainment, we have Riot Games. And then we also have things like the North American headquarters for companies like Sega of America. And so when you think about it, California is in a sense almost disproportionately represented um, in this global industry. And folks might hear, oh, 8,000 jobs and think, okay, but if we're talking globally, how many people are employed by this industry, that's only what, let's say 3%, if I'm doing quick back of the napkin math, uh, that might not sound like a lot, but to the people who follow this industry and who work in it, that is actually a pretty t- troubling figure. And as you point out in your reporting, Sarah, these are, are high paying jobs. Absolutely. And some of these jobs pay a lot better than a lot of the other industries. You know, I think gaming could be seen as on par with tech and sometimes is part of tech as well. 
We're talking with Los Angeles Times reporter who covers the video game industry, Sarah Parvini. Also with us, the director of business development at Tencent Games, a Shanghai-based digital entertainment company, Amir Satfat. Amir, thank you very much for for being with us. Um, what are some of the ways that those who've lost their jobs in this industry are 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 trying to find new ones? Larry, I'm very happy to talk about and and Sarah featured this, which I'm gracious for uh, grateful for in her reporting. The work that a community I lead of over 60,000 people does on LinkedIn. We have a listing of jobs of over 16,000 roles, a mentor network, listings where hiring managers can find them. And finding these types of connections between people and those who have the roles has led to over 800 people finding work. So that type of work, I think, can make a, a big change. And how are they finding work in an industry that is shedding jobs? You know, a lot of it is just making sure that they're available of all the opportunities. This is a vocation industry, Larry. Let's be honest about it. And even before these cuts happen, it's always been extremely competitive. But I, I've been encouraged by the fact that a lot of our job seekers know about the really big companies in the space, but they may not know about a lot of the smaller ones. And that's what I really try to focus on with my many people helping me in the community, focusing on those over a thousand employers who have roles they may not have heard of. Mm. Uh, give us a sense of how competitive this industry is, because um, I just I was not aware of, uh, you know, the, the kinds of hours people work, the kinds of demands to outcompete all the companies in this space. It's awfully tough, Larry. I would say that, you know, the stats I often share with job seekers is if you don't have any connections to somebody into an org, you probably are looking at one in a thousand or one in 1200 chances for the most competitive roles. Even if you have been able to forge those relationships, I would say in many cases, you're looking at well more competitive than a one in 100 shot. These are very sought after roles. And what kinds of, of educational background and experience range do people have that are that are coming into this job market? It's highly varied. I mean, some of the most effective people I've known uh, who I deeply admire didn't even go to college and can work in functions like production. But I would say perhaps the more typical range of experiences are those in art school, those with college degrees increasingly, and even programs in the game design. And of course, there's so many different roles in accounting and business, which have those more traditional backgrounds. So I would say uh, it, it's a very, very diverse industry. And given the kinds of competition that you're describing in the job market, um, what's your sense of how these programs in video game design at the college and university level are, are counseling students? I mean, students that go to film school, they know what kinds of odds that they're facing if they want to be movie directors. Um, I wonder, do people going into video gaming have a sense of that? Uh, my assessment is that that they probably do not. I've talked with a number of the people at those programs, and they do absolutely the best that they can. But I think going full circle with where we started our conversation, this is where so many community helpers are playing the types of roles of trying to help with that on platforms like LinkedIn to bring that education, to bring those resources to people. We're talking with Amr Satvat, who's Director of Business Development at Tencent Games, uh, who has set up mentorship programs and worked with people who've lost their jobs in video game design, other jobs within video gaming, and helping them find new places to land. Also with us, LA Times reporter covering the video game industry, Sarah Parvini. And 
And I'd love to hear from you if you're someone who works in this industry, just to get your sense of how you see the industry evolving, particularly coming out of the pandemic, when the demand has subsided a bit after the very high demand years of the pandemic, when we were all home looking for things to do when we couldn't go out in the world. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, where you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Amir, how much of this work can be done remotely and how much of it needs to be done with on-site teams? It's interesting, Larry. I found that it's very bifurcated based upon the size of the company. For companies that are hiring over 40 people, 0% of them are fully remote at this point. But for those that are hiring in smaller uh, numbers of folks, like less than 10, uh, that number has actually rebounded this year. Over a quarter of them are remote. And so uh, I've been trying to share those stats so people know that they're not alone in offering those options. Sarah, I want to come back to you talk about the overall size of the industry, because it seems to me that video games are so ubiquitous with younger Americans that as our population turns over, uh, and not to say a lot of boomers, you know, don't play video games. Of course they do. <laughs> but but you've got almost universal uptake of gaming among younger Americans. I mean, it would seem like the the growth opportunities here are still tremendous. Absolutely. Uh, and I think an important thing to keep in mind is that despite these layoffs that we are seeing, the industry is to is projected to continue growing. You know, if you look at the estimates from one data firm based in Amsterdam called Nuzu, you know, they're projecting the global games market to generate yearly revenues of something around 205 billion in 2026. Uh, they did adjust their revenue projections for this year from 187.7 billion to 184, but nonetheless, that's still growth, even if it's a little bit less than what we thought it would be. It's so funny because I don't think that that the general public considers the size of video gaming what it really is. We look at, say, the film industry. We look at, at professional sports and the size of that. But gaming is just, it's mammoth. Yeah, Larry, you're absolutely right. And I think that that's kind of one of the, the missteps or the pitfalls uh, of the way that folks might view the video game industry. Not only are we talking about these potential billions in revenue globally, you mentioned Hollywood. And if you look at the amount of money that goes into making some of these blockbuster games, the AAA titles, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. So if you compare that to what goes into making a movie, I think you'll see that the video game industry is not just something that to be written off as a hobby just for kids. And has its own risks, just like Hollywood production. Sarah Parvini, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. She covers the video game industry for the Los Angeles Times. And our thanks to the Director of Business Development at Tencent Games, Amr Satvat. That is hanging up the goddamn nation Looks like we always end up in a rut Everybody now trying to make
It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by the great Les McCann. You just heard what was a hit from 1969, live recording at the Montreux Jazz Festival with saxophonist Eddie Harris. The album is Swiss Movement, and compared to what? A song which wasn't only a jazz soul classic, but was a pop hit as well. And Les McCann is back at age 88, with an album taken from two of his live recordings at the Penthouse Club in Seattle and New York's Village Vanguard in 1966-67, when an early 30s Les McCann was making a name for himself. Let's listen to a selection. This is back uh, from, again, 1966 and 67, from the brand-new album that's just out, Never a Dull Moment, live from coast to coast. This is The Shampoo. Let's talk about this, because I hear a lot of gospel influence in that. You grew up in Kentucky. Uh, how much was the church an influence on your playing? 100%. When I go to church, if I leave, I go walk over to the keyboard and try to see what I can do. But couldn't wait to get home and see if I could play what I heard. What was it like for you living in Los Angeles as a musician at this period, um, mid-1960s and continuing on. I mean, there's so many other great artists who were recording and performing live in jazz during that period. Um, you know, what what was that like for you as a creative person? Well, it was a great learning period, but at the same time, it was a great chance that nobody was doing what I was doing, you know. So uh, when, when the coffee houses started, to be more than just a coffee house. People would come out to hear the music. Oh, is that going to be here tonight? But it was uh, up and down uh, Sunset Boulevard. You know, it was a lot of clubs and things, but always a lot of the people on the street had the whole audience was uh, students, you know? <laughs> We're talking with the terrific uh, soul jazz pianist and vocalist Les McCann. Uh, with the hit record from 1969, Swiss Movement, which, in fact, uh, uh, he's recreated in stage performances over the years. Two hit songs that came out of that. We'll hear Cold Duck Time a little bit later, also off of that album. But Les McCann with a brand-new release just out, Never a Dull Moment, live from coast to coast, 
66 and 67. These performances from the Village Vanguard, the famed and still operating um, jazz nightclub in New York City, and the Penthouse Club, uh, of which at the time was operating in Seattle. Let's listen to another track from the album. This is Out in the Outhouse from Never a Dull Moment. Pianist Les McCann, that from uh, Out in the Outhouse, the brand new Never a Dull Moment, live from coast to coast recording. In these in these years, were you singing at all or just playing piano? I was basically just playing the piano, yes. My producer, uh, Dick Bach, he said one time, why don't you sing? This is years after I was into about four or five records already. That's the same. I'm not saying. He said, "I love your voice." I said, "Well, hey, I can do it until I fell in love with doing it." So at first, you hadn't fallen in love with it when you did the that um, classic performance at Montreux with saxophonist Eddie Harris. Uh, by that point, had you been singing quite a bit, or or not even by 1969? I was about through high school, but I was singing a choir in a group situation uh, with my uh, five brothers as a doo-wop group. So uh, by then, oh, I was totally into it, you know. Uh, I, I know that you had a stroke a few years ago. Are you still able to play the piano these days? Ah, uh, not yet, not yet, not yet. But I do my fingers every day. But I, I'm looking forward to it as long as I can play my left hand and sing, I'm, I'm going to be fine. All right. Well, let's uh, let's leave our listeners with another uh, hit recording this off, Swiss Movement, the 1969 soul jazz classic recorded at the Montreux Jazz Festival with our guest, the pianist and vocalist Les McCann, Eddie Harris, the electrifying Eddie Harris was on saxophone here. Let's listen to Cold Duck Time.
right. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Les McCann, pianist, uh, electric keyboardist during part of his career, and vocalist as well. Again, the new album is Never a Dull Moment, live from coast to coast, recordings from 1966 and 67, from New York's Village Vanguard and Seattle's Penthouse Club. Les McCann, thanks for joining us today on Air Talk. Thank you, thank you. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on LAist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home. So I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk Overtime on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you for joining us for this bonus hour of Air Talk on this Giving Tuesday. Well, what binds together Los Angeles, Phoenix, San Antonio, Houston, New Orleans, and Jacksonville? It's, of course, Interstate 10. And with that cord running across the United States, there are so many issues that these cities have that are similar and uh, that uh, bring them together to look at some of the common issues that they face. And that's the intent of Arizona State University's 10 uh, Across program. 10 Across takes a look at the cities along this corridor and tries to uh, imagine some of the fixes to challenges they face. Joining us to talk about the 10 Across program is Duke Ryder, founder and executive director. Duke, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation, Larry. Duke, share with us the genesis of 10 Across and and how the program was conceived. Sure. The genesis was that I spent 10 years of my life in the Gulf area, especially in New Orleans. And so I was constantly on the 10. And a few decades later, I find myself in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm on the same street all over again. I'm on the 10. And as you know, ASU is developing a footprint in Los Angeles. So I spend a lot of my time on this highway, and I began to see issues that were common to the many cities that you just called out uh, on that transect, and we decided to turn that into a project. Well, and of, and of course, um, one of the things that we see that all of these communities are dealing with is land use, uh, the suburbanization of cities like Houston and Jacksonville, Phoenix, of course, with the massive development that's taken place in Maricopa County. And, and mm-hmm. what are some of the ways that innovative approaches of one community can be transferred to another? Right. I think what you're describing is the fact that these are the new cities in the United States, so to speak. And they're all functions of 20th century technology, the automobile foremost amongst them, 
but that begat the highway system in 1956, production housing, air conditioning that made many of these places habitable, frankly. And uh, they are low-rise cities. They spread out because we could drive anywhere. So thinking about land use, as you just described, how much we consume, how we could probably be more efficient in that regard, and we're going to need to be as we move into the future with regard to water and energy and a variety of other issues. So I think we're going to have to rethink these still new cities. And where does Southern California fit into this? Because I think those of us here, we tend to think of ourselves as both unique, but also on the cutting edge. What happens here then will be happening in the rest of the United States. So how do we fit into this and um what can we potentially learn from, say, a Jacksonville? Well, I think you fit into it, especially with regard to the three largest states. Uh, so you've got California, Texas, and Florida. And obviously, uh, as we approach an election year, there are different discussions coming out of those states with regard to a template for the future. And so having California, Southern California, Los Angeles in that mix is hugely important. But there is an exchange of ideas, especially at the city level, where there's a a certain commonality of purpose, especially around resilience, how we are thinking about how to handle the future. Every one of these cities has a chief resilience officer or maybe a chief heat officer. (laughs) So the exchange of information that is going on between those cities and those CROs is profound. And 10 Across has become a network for them. And it's turning out to be hugely productive. We're talking with the founder and executive director of Arizona State University's 10 Across program, Duke Ryder. Uh, By the way, next week, Tuesday through Thursday at various locations in Los Angeles, they're holding a series of programs to address some of these issues. Land use, water, energy, uh, what the future of downtowns in these communities look like post-pandemic, looking at the needs for housing and how you can do adaptive reuse of perhaps commercial or specifically office buildings and what some of the barriers to that are. The uh, program is is called the Los Angeles Summit. The future is here. That's next week, Tuesday to Thursday. And Duke will tell us in a little bit about uh, how people can reserve uh, a space if they'd like to attend the event. But Duke, let's talk a bit about water because, again, we think of that as, as a tremendous challenge here in the Southwest. But as the climate warms, this is going to be more and more of an issue across this whole I-10 corridor. Absolutely. And we began this project with water. And we started at the Water Institute of the Gulf in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because Louisiana has lost 2,000 square miles of land and is going to lose another 3,000 due to sea level rise and its relationship to the Mississippi River, which has been channelized. And so that was my first experience with this project. Then I come to the desert Southwest, and again, the subject is water. Again, it's another major river, not the Mississippi, but this time the Colorado. And so the comparison between these two areas and how we're going to manage water, either too much or too little, how the various states that have something to say about that are going to learn how to make collective decisions, water turns out to be a binding agent for 10 across that's probably the most profound because we find it in its most extreme conditions along the 10. Uh, 
What can Southern California potentially learn from Phoenix, where you're based, about dealing with rising temperatures? Because, of course, you know, the questions about how people are going to manage getting around um, the Valley of the Sun, given rising temperatures, but also even in coastal Southern California, we're going to be looking at temperature rises for people who don't have air conditioning and, and, and challenges they just haven't experienced before. What can we learn from Phoenix? Absolutely. So we will have a special session at the summit, which I can describe in a little bit, with the chief heat officers from Los Angeles. That's Marta Segura, uh, Dave Hondula from Phoenix, and other cities talking about the strategies for finding ways to cool the population, especially those that you just described who may not have the means to have their own air conditioning and or need other kinds of support to find cooling solutions. So if you wanna see how we're handling it and we're very aggressively, considering that we had over 50 days this year of 110 and above, we have to think about the future and heat. And so the, the mayor, Mayor Gallego, assigned a chief heat officer to this, and we can do- talk about those strategies when people come to the summit. We're talking about this Los Angeles summit. The future is here is the title of the event, December 5th through 7th. That's next Tuesday through Thursday at multiple locations, including the ASU California Center, which is the gorgeous historic Herald Examiner building that ASU has completely adapted for its educational purposes. Also, the City Club in downtown Los Angeles and uh, registration is still available for for those who would like to attend. Seminars include a look at power sharing between uh, different uh, jurisdictional powers, uh, water diplomacy. Can the Colorado and the Mississippi be models for decision-making? Um, a, a look at insurance, which we talked about on this program. Getting affordable insurance or being covered by insurance at all is just a huge challenge given the losses that insurers have, have suffered from wildfires in California and hurricanes along the southern and eastern part of the United States. Uh, Those are just a few of the topics, housing, of course, that are going to be taken on as well. There'll even be uh, a journalist panel with our own Megan Garvey moderating the conversation. So uh, how can people sign up for this, Duke? Well, you did a wonderful job of describing some of the panels. So people can go to 10across.org. That's the number 1010across.org. Look for events and you will see the summit. And for anyone who uh, registers, who's listening to your program, Larry, if they put in 100 AirTalk, they can get a $100 discount for the summit. Terrific. 100 AirTalk, the discount code. Duke, thank you Mm -hmm. so much for joining us. And we hope you'll come back on the program, talk about more of the work being done with 10 Across, the I-10 corridor, and all the cities along the way. Thanks very much. Thank you, Larry. Founder and executive director of ASU's 10 Across, Duke Ryder, with us on Air Talk. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.